This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. And on uh, today's program, I wanted to talk to you about two interrelated subjects. One, uh, which we might call the new world order, or maybe more so the new world disorder, and about how the world is fragmenting uh, geopolitically. And the second is the consequence of that, which some people are calling the end of globalization, and maybe what life will look like in that world after globalization, or at least after the globalization that we have been used to for um, a good number of years, several decades, in fact. <clears throat> and uh, these these subjects, uh, I think, are very important for uh, businesses of all types, particularly businesses that have interests internationally. And by interests internationally, I don't just mean, you know, that they may have um, factories or distribution centers, or even that they're necessarily exporting. But if you're a, if you're a company that uh, imports, you have suppliers um, externally, or indeed you are exporting, or you have set up uh, distribution centers or factories in other parts of the world, what happens with the supply chain internationally is very much of interest to you. And some of these changes are going to have uh, big repercussions for all businesses with those international interests and also for um, how you pay attention to what's going on out there and how you shape your business strategies to, to respond to that. So um, the first of the topics then, so the new world disorder, if we want to call it that. So re recently I was listening to a fascinating interview with uh, Giles uh, Keppel on the Tailberg Foundation uh, podcast. And uh, Giles was talking about some of the geopolitical shifts that are taking place in the, in the Middle East and how the alignments between some of the countries in that region and some of the larger world powers, such as uh, the US, China, uh, the EU and, and Russia, are actually morphing and changing right now. So in, in that region, the, the Middle East, as we know, it's been very uh, unstable and a bit of a, a powder keg for, for many years. And geopolitics in that region are now becoming even more complex and, and nuanced. So they're less, less rigidly aligned and more difficult to predict or even to follow. Uh, what's actually going on and to understand what's going on. Um, so this has given rise to some quite strange uh, situations, at least to our eyes here in the in the West. So we see uh, recently examples of Turkey, say, which is a large power in, in that region. Uh, Turkey is a NATO um, member, uh, so it's an ally of the West, if you like. But yet uh, Turkey has been buying military equipment from Russia. And now we've seen uh, China brokering a peace deal between the two arch enemies, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. And that's a role that normally the Americans or the Europeans would have been involved in. So it's the first time we've seen China in a, in a role like that as, as peacemaker. 
And these are things that are happening um, uh, just in the Middle East, by, by way of examples. But the same type of thing is going on in other parts of the world, in, in Asia and in Africa and in Latin America. And it's affecting some really big uh, countries, big players um, in those regions, the likes of uh, Brazil, South Africa and India, uh, to name just a few. So I think what's going on is part of the playing out of one of the major global trends that I've spoken about here on the podcast um, with other colleagues from around the world and interviewees that I've had on here. And that global trend, uh, which has been going on for, for some time and is going to continue on into the, into the future, is uh, what I'm calling geopolitical fragmentation. Um, and you may wonder, well, okay, fine, that's that's going on. But why am I telling you about all of these geopolitics on a business-focused um, uh, podcast or radio program? And and the reason for that is because I strongly believe that businesses all over the world are going to have to be paying a lot more attention uh, to the geopolitics of the places where their customer markets the production facilities, the distribution centers, and their suppliers are actually located. Um, so I think, in fact, a detailed understanding of what we might call the geopolitical weather in the relevant locations is going to be a key uh, input, if you like, to the design and the operation of international supply chains in the future. And, and that will be in a way that just wasn't ever the case uh, before, at least not to this extent. Um, and the thing is, this geopolitical weather is becoming a lot more variable as we move into the future. So you may ask, are, are businesses ready for this challenge? Well, I think the short answer to that is no, they're, they're not. And why are they not? Well, uh, the reason, I think, is because while this trend has been evolving for, for some time, this trend of geopolitical fragmentation, I'd say at least 20 years, maybe maybe more, it's really only in recent years that that pace of change has increased dramatically and the trend has become you know, much more obvious to people. Um, you know, people tend to have a kind of a, a worldview and that worldview is set and they go on with that year after year, and they're very focused on their business and their day-to-day -day and the firefighting and everything that goes on in a business, You're not necessarily paying attention to what's going on in the in the wider world of geopolitics, unless you happen to be a you know a current affairs or a politics buff and so on. So I think with a few notable exceptions, um many businesses have just it's just simply not been paying enough attention and they're now uh, behind the, the curve uh, playing catch up. So I think what is definitely clear now is that this process of geopolitical fragmentation is, is not going to slow down uh, anytime soon. It does have major implications uh, for strategy development and implementation for all businesses that are trading internationally in some way or another. And um, consequently, I think being tuned in locally uh, wherever you have key interests and being agile in your response to changes, cognizant of the risks in those locations, uh, having thought through options for preventive and contingent responses uh, to events that might occur and have these prepared in advance and ready to go. I think these are all going to be key capabilities 
um, for businesses that they may not have ne- needed to that extent before. Uh, and I think if they if they do um, uh, look at things in this way and adapt those good um, habits and practices, it will go a long way to ensuring resilience in the face of um, that kind of unfolding reality. So maybe a few questions for you to to ponder on on this um, topic, particularly if you are a business person um, with international interests. Um, First question to think about is, what actually is the geopolitical weather in in the places where you have key interests, such as uh, customers, factories, warehouses, suppliers, and how might that geopolitical weather affect your interests in those places? Uh, Second question, whose responsibility is it in your organization um, to be aware of and across all of this detail? And who has the actual competence and acumen uh, within your organization to fulfill this role? Um, And the third question then is, how do you ensure that this knowledge and this information, once it's been acquired, gets to the right places in in your business to shape and to influence the relevant decisions and strategies and and tactics. So that's some some food uh, for thought on that topic of geopolitical um, fragmentation. And uh, now we're going to turn our attention a little bit to what life will look like in, in that world where that fragmentation, if you like, is ending globalization, or at least ending the globalization as we've known it for the last um, 30 years or so. Um, and we're moving into a kind of a new phase of globalization. So I, I read I read an article um, recently by a gentleman called uh, Lorenzo Mazzilli, and the article was, was called, uh, What Will Life After Globalization Look Like? And Mazzilli's uh, perspective he was taking like a, a cultural perspective on this, and he was drawing on the latest developments in architecture, actually, um, that were on show at the 2023 uh, Venice Biennale. Um, and he was using that to draw attention to, as he put it, um, the promise and perils of a fragmenting world. So his observation was that in, in the world of architecture around around the world, um, the the, the 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 fashion or the the design or the, the zeitgeist is moving away from a uni- eurocentric uh, universalism and was taking on much more of a regional character of the localities where the architecture was being um, put in place whether it be Africa Latin America or Asia um and as Mazzilli correctly points out at least on a cultural level uh, this universalist globalization globalization is fragmenting. Um, and on, on listening to that and listening to his arguments, I said to myself, I think the same thing is happening in trade and in business, and that this has serious implications for international supply chains and how they're conceived, how they're designed, and, and how they're managed. So how far is this fragmentation going to go and and how far is globalization as we've known it going to unwind and how long will it take the the transition uh, to get from here to wherever it is where we're headed to and what actually will things look like in in that future life after globalization as as some people put it and i think the truth the, the the real answer the truth is that nobody really knows um 
And the fact that nobody knows, I guess, gives you a clue about how, as a supply chain strategist and decision maker, if that's what you are, you should be thinking about the future. And so you're actually going to be facing the challenge of working out how when you don't know how. And my own view is that it's not going to be so much life after globalization as a kind of a concrete destination, but more so uh, a case of life in a continuously mutating globalization that's going to be in in an ongoing process of change for as far as far out as we can see into the future. Um, so how how did we get to this place? Well, I guess we, we, we have to go back a bit. So if we go back to around the time of the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, uh, and soon after that, the dissolution, dissolution of, the, of the Soviet Union, and then uh, in the early 90s, soon after that, the entry of uh, China into the World uh, Trade Organization, which was essentially China joining the world economy. Uh, Prior to that, China had been um, quite a closed uh, state under the Chinese Communist Party. It's still still under the the Chinese Communist Party, but they've changed tack, at least economically, uh, since then. And that happened in and around the the early 90s. And with those events, uh, the fall of the wall, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the entry of China into the WTO, global trade grew uh, spectacularly. And one of the main beneficiaries of that was was the US. And the US became the preeminent superpower economically and geopolitically through the 90s and the 2000s, with no no real uh, rivals at at that time. And this was perhaps the golden age of economic uh, globalization, uh, from the fall of the wall to the financial crash in about 2007, 2008. And during that, during that period of time of uh, almost 20 years, so 17, 18 years, um, many developing countries um, were able to grow on the back of that growing global uh, trade and globalization. And many of those developing countries grew uh, spectacularly and uh, raised hundreds of millions of people in, in the developing world out, out of poverty in countries like, like China, which is now the, has grown to be the second largest economy in the world. Also in India, which is now the fifth largest economy in, in the world. And also in, in many other kind of mid-sized countries um, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, um, who have um, grown uh, quite spectacularly during during that period, and these countries, you know, we could refer to them all if we if we grouped them together, maybe as the the global South, um, and they make up now a greater proportion of world GDP than ever. So about about forty percent of world GDP is um, attributable to the the global South. So these countries matter now, and and they matter uh, big time. Um, but the thing about them is they're very diverse um, countries. They, they range the full gamut from democracies to dictatorships. And they're not a political or economic bloc in any coherent um, sense. And they align their interests uh, with others this way and that as best suits them at any given given time. And they don't really fall into neat camps so they're not really in America. You couldn't say they're in America's corner. You couldn't say they're in Europe's corner. You couldn't say they're in China's corner. 
So they kind of make alliances and agreements as suits them on particular and specific uh, issues. So this makes for really unpredictably shifting sands out there in the international um, sphere. And that is giving rise to tensions and it's giving rise to uh, confusion and it's giving rise to potential conflict around the world and actual conflict around the world, as, as we're well aware. So you can see you can see this kind of ambivalence of these countries and their their alignment. So one example would be, say, uh, Brazil and India's reluctance recently to align with the West on the on the war in Ukraine and and impose sanctions on Russia. So they have uh, resisted uh, doing that. Um, also, we see it in in the African nations. Um, a group of African nations went on a peace mission recently to Kiev and uh, St. Petersburg in, in Ukraine and Russia. And we also see it in India's uh, continuing to buy Russian oil while at the exact same time participating in the strategic security dialogue as part of the Quad um, security uh, arrangement along with Japan, Australia and the US. So this is the world we we now live in. It's it's complex and it's fragmented, and it's continuing to become more fragmented and and complex. So um, current international supply chains are just not designed for the, for this kind of world. And um, I guess what's happening now is that as a result, some of those very clever and smartest supply chain strategists and decision makers out there, they're rapidly redesigning and, and reconfiguring uh, their supply chains. They're not um, they're not shouting about it um, because they don't necessarily want to publicize what they're doing or um, antagonize any of the countries where they you know have um, substantial interests. But they are making those changes. So if you're a supply chain strategist, a decision maker, maybe you should be asking yourself whether you should be doing the same thing and what opportunities you have uh, to do the same thing and what risks and um, dangers you, you may be facing if you if you don't actually um, have a good look at that and start making some changes. So I, I think some of the changes that we are seeing when um, when we notice them are that international supply chains are becoming they're becoming shorter, and they're becoming more regionalized. So what I mean by that is rather than being kind of um, global intercontinental supply chains, they're kind of coagulating into regions. So say a Europe region, a North America region, a Latin America region. Uh, an East Southeast Asia region, a South Asia region, and we're seeing supply chain networks growing and multiplying within those regions. And the ones that are kind of between the regions are uh, uh, becoming fewer and, um, and and less significant in the greater in the greater scheme of things. Um, Supply chains are also, as they regionalize, they're also building in more um, redundancy. People are building in continuous risk evaluation. Um, and they're, they're shifting the balance of the priority between efficiency and security in their supply chains in favor of, of security. So really what is uh, top of the agenda is uh, flexibility, uh, resilience, and the ability to turn on a sixpence 
um, which has become become paramount now. So this is what life after globalization is going to look like, um, or at least life after globalization as as we have known it. And in reality, it's probably already already here. Um, So uh, I guess a, a question for you on that is how exactly are are you preparing for it um and what kind of changes and improvements do you think you can make to your supply chain as um as these changes unfold and then a uh, final item that i picked up on recently that's relevant to all of this is um uh, piece of news about the energy transition. So I'd been wondering how long it would take for the story I saw in the news um, recently to appear, and then appear it did. And the announcement was, uh, I quote, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has helped ignite a boom in clean energy investment, which will significantly outpace spending on fossil fuels, according to the International Energy Agency. Um, So according to the IEA, uh, energy investments now split as follows. So there's $1.7 trillion going into clean energy versus $1 trillion going into uh, fossil fuels per annum. And, um, you know, this is a big turnaround in favor of renewables. And for me, this is the result of the interaction of uh, two of these uh, big trends of our time, which is the geopolitical fragmentation that we've just been talking about and uh, climate change. And, and combining uh, those two significant, significantly in a, in a way to accelerate processes that were already underway. And as a consequence, we're seeing clean energy investments are now increasing faster than many expected or are even aware of at this time. And they're pulling away from fossil fuel investments at an increasing pace. So uh, the chief beneficiaries of those investments are investments in, in renewables, such as wind and solar, electric vehicles, uh, batteries, nuclear power, electricity grids, uh, storage, and other low-carbon uh, technologies. And even anecdotally, um, here in, in Dublin, if you like, day-to-day, yeah, you notice a significant increase in electrical ve- uh, electric vehicles on the road. With, with I think, new registrations of uh, EVs in Ireland have now, for the first time, uh, outpaced diesels. Um, and that's a that's a recent and, and new development. I'm also noticing uh, lots of people around the place installing solar panels and heat pumps on their homes as part of home energy upgrades. And in the energy sector, we're hearing about new wind energy investments, both onshore and offshore in the Atlantic um, all over Western Europe. Uh, here in Ireland, for example, we have the potential to generate maybe seven times our own requirements for electricity from wind, with the rest um, you know, being destined for export to mainland Europe. We're also seeing lots of uh, transport modal shift from uh, air to deep sea and from road to short sea and road to rail. And uh, this, is, this is happening in the logistics sectors all over the EU. So I think we might be just uh, close to reaching a tipping point uh, of an exponential process here. So it often seems for a long time that uh, progress was um, painfully slow, um, notwithstanding the existence of many of these technologies around the place for quite quite a long time. And now all of a sudden the pace is 
um, accelerating and, and may be said to go into overdrive. And this is actually quite a common feature of many exponential processes uh, where the uh, the uptake and the application of new technologies often follow these kind of uh, processes. So if you look at you know the uptake of telephones or even electricity uh, back in the past, they followed processes like that. Very slow at first, then they hit a tipping point, and then they went into exponential overdrive. So, um, of course, there's no doubt that with the energy transition that we're facing into, there's going to be massive uh, infrastructural challenges ahead, not to mention the social, the political, the financial and the geopolitical implications of the energy transition. And all of that's going to need to be um, uh, navigated. But one way or the other, um, I do believe we're on the cusp of an accelerated um, transition here, which could actually be uh, the dawn of uh, uh, a new industrial revolution. So uh, that's all for this episode of Interlinks. Thank you again uh, for tuning in and be aware that if you enjoyed this episode, uh, you can find the, the full series of over 120 episodes of Interlinks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, and other major podcast platforms. So until next time, keep well and stay safe. This is Dublin South FM. Have you ever wondered what kind of support is available to you and your family in the community? The Southside Partnership is here to help. We support people, build vibrant communities and improve social and economic inclusion in the Dunleary Rathdown area. We offer services including employment supports, education and training, self-employment supports, enterprise supports, youth and family supports, supports for local community groups and the TUS programme, which offers valuable work experience in many roles such as radio production, sports coaching, librarian, administration, caretaking and much more. If you'd like to learn more about the Southside Partnership, please visit southsidepartnership.ie. <laughs> 
Ach, ach, which I call Tabach to Kern of Pissavagut and ancient of it Olish. Nevincha Eska Boni made a ekintu, a leantu, a hushatu, a yainu, Achtakunu de Thalanish. Kasuler WWW Punk B Media Smart Punk IE. Stop, Smainig, Shakyal. Bichtushkindagut and Naman. Arma Olvu, Eg Media Literacy Ireland. Are you part of a local community group or representative organisation active in the Dunleary Rathdown area? Why not join a network of over 400 such groups in the Dunleary Rathdown Public Participation Network? You can join the group, influence local policy, get regular updates about funding and other opportunities, connect with other groups like yours, publicise your group and even get free training and support. Make sure your voice is heard through DLR Public Participation Network as a registered group in the county. Don Leary Rathdown Public Participation Network. For full information, find us online at dlrppn.ie. That's dlrppn.ie. Broadcasting from the Dundrum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. 